This is Havonk. I'm Joe Salvaggi. Welcome to Hubwonk, a podcast of Pioneer Institute, a think tank in Boston. Can a president and his administration legally erase more than $400 billion in student loan debt? Legal scholars agree that the answer lies with whether Congress has authorized him to do so. In oral arguments heard this week in the case of Biden v. Nebraska, the plaintiffs representing six states assert that no such congressional authority has been given, while the Solicitor General for the administration defended the action as consistent with the intent of the 2003 HEROES Act, which had empowered the president to waive or modify the rules of loans during emergencies such as those post 9-11. To win its case, Nebraska will need to challenge the president's tenuous interpretation of the target and scope of the HEROES Act and establish that it has standing or the legal right to sue on behalf of state agencies. Were the states to be denied standing to sue, the merits of the case would be moot thus enabling the executive branch to interpret its own limits for debt cancellation with no fear of judicial interference. With the Supremes to find for the states, the loan forgiveness plan would be stopped. What are the details and nuances of the Supreme Court case and its sister case, Department of Education v. Brown? Which legal principles will find purchase among the nine members of the court? And what will determine which side will win its case? My guest today is constitutional scholar and George Mason University law professor, Ilya Soman. Professor Soman has written extensively on the constitutional issues surrounding Biden v. Nebraska and Department of Education v. Brown. He will show us the important legal and constitutional elements in these cases and offer his opinion on the merits of the cases, the plaintiff's legal right to sue, and future presidential prerogatives that will follow from these decisions. When I return, I'll be joined by legal scholar and law professor Ilya Soman. Okay, we're back. This is Hubwonk. I'm Joe Salvaggi, and I'm now pleased to be joined by constitutional scholar, George Mason law professor, and a favorite guest on this podcast, Ilya Soman. Well, welcome back to the podcast, Ilya. Thank you for having me. Okay, now before we roll up our sleeves and get into the details of uh, two related cases before the Supreme Court right now, which are Biden v. Nebraska and Board of Education v. Brown, I want to stipulate for our listeners, we're not going to talk about the merits, uh, uh, policy merits of forgiving uh, half a trillion dollars in student debts. We've done episodes on that before. We've had education experts talking about this issue, uh, and we really accept that it, it, you know, it may be a bad idea, largely based on the fact it's a regressive and a, an inflationary uh, policy choice. So let's table that and not talk about that. What we're really going to talk about is the legality of of this particular action by the Biden administration, uh, and that's why we have you as our constitutional scholar. We've just heard four hours of oral argument offered by some incredible attorneys, whereas I may not agree with uh, their positions. I was impressed. I sat through four hours of the of the uh, oral arguments with uh, Solicitor General uh, Elizabeth Proliger. She was brilliant. Uh, so let's start with the basic contours of the case. Who are the plaintiffs and who are the defendants in Biden v. Nebraska? In both cases, the defendant is essentially the Biden administration. The plaintiffs is a more complicated story. In one case, the plaintiffs are six red states uh, who argued that the uh, loan forgiveness, if it happens, will cause them various 
financial losses and the like. In the other case, which is sort of much stranger, the plaintiffs are two individuals who one of them would not get any loan forgiveness at all under the Biden program, and one of them would not get as much as they would if it were more generous. And they essentially argued that the current program is illegal, and that if the court were to strike it down, then the Biden administration have to go back to square one, that they would then uh, inquire into additional ways to try to uh, get student loan forgiveness. And those might involve doing what are called notice and comment hearings under Administrative Procedure Act, uh, and then could also result in these two individuals getting more loan forgiveness. So ironically, the two plaintiffs here, far from saying that the program should be smaller, they're saying that it should be bigger. They'll also perhaps saying that it should have been done under a different act than uh, the, the one that Biden administration cites as authorization. So in the interest of keeping our uh, our conversation more focused, given our time constraints, I want to put the um, Board of Education, B. Brown, the one you just mentioned, to the side, and let's really uh, dilate on Biden versus Nebraska. Uh, so again, as you say, it's uh, the, the plaintiffs are six red states. Um, they're bringing suit, so they've uh, suffered some harm. Tell us what their claim uh, of, of damage is against the administration. So the cleanest and simplest is that of the state of Missouri, where they have a state agency called the Higher Education Loan Authority of the state of Missouri, known to its friends and admirers as Mohila, which is what I'm going to refer to it for short. Uh, they are actually a loan servicer, that is, they service student loans, and how much money they make off of servicing federally backed student loans depends on the number of the loans and how much money is in them and so forth. And essentially, what they say, and I think correctly is that if a lot of these loans are forgiven, at least in part by the Biden administration, then Mohila will make less money, which in turn means less money for the state of Missouri. The other five states have other sort of more complicated theories of why they're harmed, uh, but Missouri's is the cleanest and simplest. Now, their case, of course, not just that they have, they're being harmed, but of course, this harm is coming at a, uh, with an action that is unconstitutional. Uh, so in broad strokes, again, we're starting on the high level. What is their case? What makes this particular Biden forgiveness program unconstitutional in their case? I think their argument is that it's not legally authorized, which in the first instance is about a federal statute rather than uh, the Constitution, though the Constitution does come into play in as much as if the statute doesn't authorize it, then it becomes unconstitutional, I guess. Uh, and the Biden administration says that all of this over $400 billion in loan forgiveness is authorized by the 2003 HEROES Act, which says that uh, if there is a national emergency, like the COVID pandemic, which was declared a national emergency by Trump, uh, that uh, then uh, the government can potentially uh, can potentially waive or modify uh, regulations affecting federal student loans uh, with respect to people who were made worse off uh, when it comes to paying off those loans by the national emergency uh, than they would have been otherwise. Uh, so that's the argument. And uh, by the Biden administration, the argument on the other side is first that waive or modify that language doesn't authorize massive loan forgiveness as opposed to sort of incremental adjustments. Secondly, they point out, I think correctly, that uh, of the over 40 million people 
who qualify for loan forgiveness under this Biden plan, uh, a large number, probably even a large majority, were not in fact negatively impacted by the pandemic in terms of their ability to pay off uh, the loans. Uh, and so I think, therefore, the, the argument of plaintiffs in these cases is that this is a massive overreach. This goes far beyond uh, what the statute authorizes, even though possibly a more limited forgiveness of loans or alternatively you know, a, a modification of the regulations that doesn't go as far as mass cancellation of loans, maybe that would have been permissible. But what the Biden administration uh, is doing, say the plaintiffs, is not. So uh, for uh, as an aside, uh, for our listeners who are strong advocates of loan forgiveness, um, were it to be the case that Congress uh, wrote an act uh, specifically, uh, you know, during COVID, perhaps that said, OK, uh, we're going to forgive $20,000 worth of loans uh, for millions of uh, former students, I guess. Uh, would that have been constitutional or unequivocally constitutional um, for uh, Congress to have done this? Yeah, I think almost certainly in that uh, Congress does have the power to spend money or forgive federal debt, which is a kind of of spending of money as well. So if Congress passed a law saying, you know, we want to, for, we, even if they passed a law saying we want to forgive all student loan debt owed to the federal government, they could have done that. But they didn't do it. And does we are here because for a number of years, liberal Democrats in Congress have wanted to pass laws uh, uh, requiring mass loan forgiveness, and they haven't been able to do that, including during the last Congress when Democrats had a majority in both houses. So this is a way essentially of the executive trying to do that which Congress would not. Yes, indeed. Uh, the president is trying to do what even a Democratic controlled Congress, both the House and the Senate, weren't able to do for two years. So he is circumventing Congress itself rather than the other party, if, if I've got the facts right. Some of both. Obviously, if Republicans were happy to do this, then he wouldn't have needed the support of almost all Democrats when the failure to get the support of almost all Democrats is ultimately why uh, this ended up being an executive policy as opposed to something Congress did. So you, you clearly stated that this particular uh, Biden's defense, uh, uh, his claim is that uh, the a 20-year-old law, 2003 uh, law that was entitled the HEROES Act, and we won't go into the details, perhaps some of the details of the HEROES Act, was specifically designed uh, to, uh, with the intent that during emergencies, in that case, uh, it was 9-11 and uh, individuals going off to war who may have had debts. He didn't want that particular, that law did not want those people who went off to war with, with debt to be harmed by that. So this was sort of a, gave latitude to the president uh, to um, waive or modify those loans. Uh, what the Biden administration did is point to that act as saying, yes, 20 years later, uh, COVID is the same as 9-11 and waive or modify includes uh, cancel. Um, let's take that apart. Uh, first, uh, is did the HEROES Act uh, pertain to other emergencies and how, how would you uh, draw the limits of that particular act? I think here the Biden administration is probably right in that the HEROES Act specifically refers to national emergencies in general, not just 9-11 specifically. So anytime the president declares a national emergency, which in this case Trump did, and Biden continued it, though he is going to terminate the national emergency, he says, on May 11th of this year. But uh, at the time that he declared the loan forgiveness policy, the national emergency uh, was most definitely in place. There's a whole other set of issues we could discuss about how it's way too easy for the president to declare a national 
emergency and then continue it indefinitely under the National Emergencies Act of 1976. But in the case of COVID, all but the most extreme denialists and conspiracy theorists, I think, would have to admit that there was, in fact, a genuine national emergency with COVID, especially before vaccination was available. So I, I want to get a zero in on, OK, it is an emergency. But I want to focus on these terms, wave or modify. Now, you, we, we talked about earlier, we're talking about almost half a trillion dollars in student debts, uh, not a small amount, even in this day and age. Um, does wave and modify, you know, again, from a legal perspective, also include cancel or forgive, whatever term we want to use? So it's important to remember that wave or modify does not refer to the student loan debt itself, but rather to the regulations governing the uh, the debt. Uh, and wave or modify is not the most clear language ever. I would argue that uh, wave or modify, at the very least, is ambiguous as to whether it authorizes action on such an enormous scale to actually cancel massive debt as opposed to make more incremental advantage. Uh, more incremental modifications. Uh, and the Supreme Court has said in a whole series of decisions that when a federal government agency, an executive agency says that uh, they have been uh, granted the power to resolve a so-called major question, uh, that courts must rule against such a claim of authority unless it is clear that Congress has authorized this, like unless it's very clear on the face of the statute that they're allowed to do this. And here, at the very least, it's ambiguous. There is another, I think, even more significant textual weakness in the Biden administration's argument, which is that even if waive or modify does include cancellation and mass cancellation on this scale, still it can only be done with respect to individuals who, because of the national emergency, have been impaired and their ability to repay the loans. And for very likely a large majority of the potential beneficiaries of this plan, this just isn't true. And I think that flaw in the Biden administration's logic is actually even more significant and certainly more glaring than the one about waive or modify. Yes, I, I want to focus. I'm glad you brought that up because um, I think many of the defenders of the Biden position sort of follow the logic, I think, in the reverse direction. They say, because there is an emergency, therefore, the the president has power. But in, in the HEROES Act, uh, I think what they specifically uh, target is this concept that um, uh, the loan forgiveness would be for those who, quote, suffered direct economic hardship or as a direct result of a war or other military operation or national emergency as determined by the se secretary. So it's direct economic hardship as of it's, you know, it's hardship to, hardship to them because of COVID. So um, uh, and, and with respect to their loan. I think given the fact that the uh, the, the president has delayed re repayments of loans, it'd be hard to argue that those with student loans during COVID uh, uh, suffered direct harm. In fact, it seems to me they, they received a direct benefit by virtue of their delayed repayment program. I think to some extent that's true, uh, although I would note two things. There probably is a subset of people who really were harmed by the pandemic with respect to their ability to repay the loans, say people who had long-term spells of unemployment or very severe illness that impaired their ability to work and so on. That's just as only a small minority of the 40 million who actually were are covered by this plan. So a more limited plan possibly might be justified under the HEROES Act. This massive gargantuan plan, uh, I think, cannot be. Ironically, the administration actually argues that uh, the suspension of uh, student debt payments 
actually uh, harm people's ability to repay because they say, well, if your payments have been suspended for a period of time, you might get used to not paying uh, and restructure your finances accordingly. Uh, and therefore, uh, when the uh, you know, when the moratorium on payment ends, uh, then, you know, you might have to scramble. It'll be difficult for you to start repaying. Uh, I think that is somewhat perverse logic. But even if it's true, it once again, to the extent that it's true, it'll probably only apply to a small minority uh, of all the people who are covered by this plan. Yeah, we say, is that called a, a reliance uh, interest case or, you know, where people have... See, I, I suppose you can call it a reliance interest, uh, but... Uh, I think it's weaker than a standard reliance interest case where you can argue that you shouldn't pull something from somebody because they've come to rely on it. Uh, in the case of a repayment moratorium, everybody, at least everybody reasonable, understands that it's going to end sooner or later. And therefore, the reasonable person would make provisions for when it's likely to end. And while you can say you know, that somebody who was severely ill or had long-term spells when employment or likely might not be able to do that, for the vast majority of the 40 million people, that just isn't true. Now, I, I want to talk about the, um, again, we, we talked about, you, you introduced the major question issue, which is, you know, is it possible that uh, you could interpret the HEROES Act to uh, somewhat anticipate the modern emergency or future modern emergencies and say, okay, look, it is possible that if we squint and look at the HEROES Act, it could, you know, reasonably be uh, expected that Congress authorized uh, the president to uh, wave away what is essentially 4% of GDP, half, half a trillion dollars. Um, how does the court, even as a as a constitutional scholar, how does the court draw the line between one dollar and ten trillion dollars? What is a major question? How much is major? So that's a good question, and this is one of the points made by critics of major questions doctrine. That how do we know what's minor and what's major? The court has struggled with this somewhat, but both in this case. And in most, if not all, of the previous cases where they've said something is a major question, it's pretty obvious that it is. That here, $400 billion of loan forgiveness, I think it's clear uh, that it is major if anything is. Uh, there might be other cases where things are closer and where it's more arguable. Uh, and the court has not given us a great theory of exactly where to draw the line. But there are many legal doctrines based on standards of various kinds where the exact boundaries of what falls on one side of the line and what falls on the other are somewhat unclear. But there can still be many cases which clearly do fall on one side and where there's not much question. In here, it's pretty obvious that if there's going to be a major question, a doctrine at all, that it applies to this situation. So for our listeners who are unpersuaded that the major question doctrine is is, is valuable, have, have presidents in the past, um, let's say, uh, had their decisions reversed based on the fact that uh, their policy was not clearly defined by Congress and therefore uh, was an overstep of authority and therefore uh, owing to a major question violation has been uh, struck down. A any recent examples of that? Sure. There is at least three of them, although one of them not completely clear. There's an actual presidential policy. One was the something we've talked about previously on this podcast, the eviction moratorium first adopted by Donald Trump uh, on the pretext of the COVID pandemic and later extended by Biden. That was struck down in the fall of 2021 by the Supreme Court, in part because at the very least, the statute in question didn't clearly give the Center for Disease Control the power to do this. And they said, well, it's a major question. Uh, and so 
uh, it's not authorized. If, if it's even ambiguous, then there was in uh, early last year, there was the COVID vaccination mandate adopted by the Occupational Safety and Health Administration, uh, which uh, said that uh, some 80 million employees are required to be vaccinated against COVID. The Supreme Court said, A, it's at the very least not clear that the statute authorizes this, and B, it's a major question, so authorization has to be clear. And then finally, in West Virginia versus EPA, uh, where they ruled that uh, certain kinds of, of large-scale air pollution regulation are not clearly authorized by the Clean Air Act, uh, and therefore, uh, because it's not clear, it would be a major question to uh, be have the power to enact regulation on this scale. This case was a little bit screwier than the other two because at the time that it was decided, the Biden administration didn't actually have a clear specific policy that they wanted to implement. So there are those three cases, and there's a number of other cases going back to at least the year 2000 and language in previous opinions going back many decades, uh, which suggests uh, you know something like this approach, though I think it wasn't really clearly stated until the 2000 case of FDA versus Brown and Williamson. So it's the case that whereas uh, Congress can do such actions, a president can't do it without Congress's consent or direction. So we're talking about a separation of powers issue. Um, so for our listeners who still say, look, uh, you know, uh, set aside all the legal issues. It's a really good policy. I really think we should forgive debt. Um, I, listening to oral arguments, particularly um, Justice Kagan seemed to be uh, trying to argue the merits of debt forgiveness rather than the legality or constitutionality, constitutionality of the issue. I would say for our listeners who are in that camp, clearly uh, uh, Justice Kagan seems to be, um, to sort of wave away major question doctrine is to say that the president, when it's important enough, should be able to act without the consent of Congress, which is essentially giving unitary power to the, the president. I, am, I, am I overstating the case? So, no, I, I think for the most part, you're not. I would note two things. First, I think the court could rule against the Biden administration in this case, even without invoking major questions doctrine, simply by saying that either that waive or modify does not include mass forgiveness, or even if it does, that uh, way too many of these people were not actually negatively affected by the national emergency and their ability to repay the loans. Second, if you allow Biden to sort of use loose language in one statute to enact this massive policy that Congress for years has refused to do, then of course, uh, the other presidents, including future Republican presidents, like someone like Donald Trump, for example, could use do the same thing in order to uh, try to divert funding to their preferred projects. Indeed, uh, Donald Trump actually did exactly that already or tried to do it uh, during his administration with his attempts to declare a national emergency on the border, and then use various loose language to try to divert funding to build his border wall, which Congress had refused to do, or at least had refused to do on the scale that he wanted to do it. So I think the key question is, even if you like this particular policy and you trust Biden to use this vast authority responsibly, do you have the same trust in Donald Trump? Do you have the same trust in Ron DeSantis or whoever the next Republican president might be? And I suspect many of the people who might trust Biden would not have the same trust in future Republican presidents, nor should they. I don't trust Biden either, but 
You know, I, I think the Republicans also are not trustworthy. The whole point of giving the spending power to Congress, as the framers of the Constitution did, uh, is to prevent the uh, the president, to prevent any one person from essentially having control over the national treasury. This is one of the things over which the English Civil War was fought, to prevent the King of England from having this kind of power. Uh, and our founding fathers were aware of this point and uh, inherited from uh, the English this idea that the the executive one person should not be allowed to uh, just uh, spend at will. Yes, uh, we don't want a king, uh, and that may disappoint some of our our listeners. Uh, I'd say the flaw in that argument is you, first you have to create those powers for a king, and then you have to win every election for till the end of time. Uh, not a good plan. Uh, history isn't kind to that. Uh, let Let me sh- shift our argument to. Um, to the issue of standing, which I think is perhaps for our lay people in the audience uh, harder to understand. I'll just say as a lay person, my understanding of, of standing is that in order to sue, you have to be directly harmed. You can't sue on behalf of your neighbor who was harmed. You have to sue because you were harmed. Um, you mentioned uh, Mohela uh, is out tens of millions of dollars. What is the argument that the uh, Biden Solicitor General is making that Nebraska and the states uh, in that, that particular case do not have standing? What's the argument against standing? So standing doctrine says that uh, in order to get so-called standing, the plaintiff has to show three things. One is they were harmed, and the harm has to be sufficiently direct, though exactly how direct is somewhat disputable. Second, they have to prove that the harm was caused by whatever illegal action they're complaining about. And third, they have to show that a court decision in their favor would be able to remedy the harm. So I've already explained uh, the harm that Mohila is suffering, and the Biden administration actually concedes that if Mohila filed the lawsuit itself, then they would have standing. But they say Mohila is actually independent of the state of Missouri because they're set up as somewhat of a separate corporation, which has the right to sue and be sued. It has its own finances. Uh, and so forth. And it has its own board, uh, which governs it as opposed to just, say, the governor of Missouri being able to issue it orders and say, like, this is what Mohila should be doing. And therefore, they say, because Mohila is a separate entity, uh, then uh, Missouri can't bring a lawsuit on behalf of Mohila, because while Mohila might have standing, Missouri does not, because Missouri is you know, sufficiently separate from Mohila. So that's uh, that's the argument that uh, the Biden administration is making. But in, in my understanding, again, forgive me as a layperson, a narrow uh, standing is a, a person ultimately harmed. Now, the a state may may uh, may represent uh, the its uh, citizens in this case, but doesn't an individual have to show harm? And, and if the government agency is harmed and no individual is harmed, is that still, are they still entitled to standing or perhaps a more broad understanding? I I think you have a misunderstanding here. It is well accepted that both government agencies and states as a whole can bring cases and they do so all the time, so long as they prove standing in the the three criteria that I mentioned earlier. Okay. So so, So the argument here is not that states in general are not allowed to bring a case or that government agencies are not allowed to bring cases. It's rather that while Mohila may have the right type of harm, uh, the state of Missouri does not because the state of Missouri is ultimately separate from Mohila. Uh, you mentioned that it's six red states that have, have joined in this suit. Does it matter that all have to have standing or if one has standing, then the, the, if, the if, if one has standing, it's enough. Uh, and Missouri 
uh, I think has the best case out of the six, which is why the oral argument last week focused mostly on uh, Mohila and its relationship to Missouri. And on that point, I would note one thing, and that is that the argument that I sketched out earlier that the Biden administration is making, it simply overlooks the fact that Missouri actually owns Mohila. Uh, so yes, Mohila is administratively separate from the rest of the state government, uh, but it's still the case that Mohila is a state agency. Its board, most of the members are appointed by the governor of Missouri, and even those who are not are still state officials. So uh, the fact that Mohila is structurally separate from some other state agencies, to my mind, I don't think that should make a decisive difference in its ability to get standing, uh, because ultimately, uh, if one entity, the state of Missouri owns multiple different entities or has multiple different departments to state government, uh, it should, it, that should not matter so long as they all ultimately are part of the same overall uh, government uh, body, which in this case is the state of Missouri. Now, um, this again was forcefully argued by the Biden administration. I think uh, my I wasn't uh, my mind wasn't changed, but uh, my I had some doubts were introduced. We, we, again, we've parted this into two sections, which is merits and standing. Merits seems very very weak, but standing, uh, you know, uh, I think was a little bit more more persuasive uh, or questionable. Uh, I don't know. I'm not going to make any predictions. I'm sure I can't pin you down on any predictions. But what would you say is the likely outcome of, of this case? Uh, again, if it's if if there's no standing, the um, merits are moot. So given all the components of the, this case, what do you see? Uh, I guess the judgment would be in, in the spring sometime. Um, what? How do you think this will come down? I, I think you're right that standing is more iffy than the merits. Uh, but I still think it is more likely than not that the plaintiffs are going to win the case. Uh, if you look at what happened in the oral argument, the three liberal justices clearly think Missouri does not have standing, and the same goes for the other states. Uh, it's possible that Justice Amy Coney Barrett, one of the six conservative justices, might agree with them on the standing issue. Uh, the questions she asked made it hard to tell you know, where she was on this. On the other hand, none of the other five conservative justices seem to have any significant doubts uh, about Missouri's standing. And if they did have those doubts, I think they would have, you know, we said something about it in the oral argument. So I think it's very likely that at least those five justices will conclude that Missouri has standing, even if they don't think that some of the other states have standing, although there is evidence that some of them think that some of the other states might have it as well. Uh, and if so, I think there are pretty clearly six justices, the six conservatives who think that this is illegal on the merits. So the most likely outcome, I think, uh, is that at least five justices will conclude that at least one plaintiff, most likely Missouri, has standing. Uh, and then there will be six votes for also concluding uh, that this is illegal on the merits as well. I'm not 100 percent certain about that, obviously. And you know, sometimes justices can do unexpected things uh, that weren't predictable based on the oral arguments, but I think this is the the most likely outcome. Okay, Ilya, in the time we have left, uh, we talked uh, obviously here at great length with the about the Biden v. Nebraska case, but we haven't yet talked about the Department of Education. I think I said Board of Education earlier, but it's actually the Department of Education v. Brown, uh, a completely different case. Um, that also has some impact on uh, or potential impact on the uh, the uh, Biden uh, uh, case. Describe for our listeners, what is the constitutional importance and significance of that particular case? So in this case, 
the standing argument for the plaintiffs is much weaker than it is in Biden versus Nebraska. I myself think they probably deserve standing, but I admit that's because I disagree with a lot of existing standing doctrine and think it's too restrictive. Under current standing doctrine, it looks like the this case will be dismissed based on standing in the, in the oral argument. Both liberal and conservative justices were skeptical of the idea that you can get standing on the basis that the current plan is not generous enough to you. And therefore, that if the court rules that the current plan is illegal, maybe the Biden administration will go back to the drawing board and adopt a a more generous plan under the Higher Education Act of 1965, which some people argue gives broader loan forgiveness authorization than uh, uh, even the uh, HEROES Act might if you buy the Biden administration's argument about the HEROES Act. Uh, And uh, they're also argued that in that event, if they did do it under the Higher Education Act, they would go through the notice and comment procedure required under the uh, uh, Administrative Procedure Act, whereas when they did it with the HEROES Act, the Biden administration skipped notice and comment because uh, when you're using emergency power, sometimes you are able to skip it. Uh, And I think the bottom line from a standing perspective is that this claim is highly speculative. It is far from clear that the Biden administration really will try to do this again. If they lose this case, they might, but they might not. In at least two of the previous cases where they lost on a major questions issue, even though there was potentially some room for the Biden administration to go back and redo things, they just essentially you know, packed up their stuff and went home. That happened after the eviction moratorium. That also happened after the OSHA vaccination mandate case. It's possible the same will happen here. It's hard to say. Uh, And obviously, even if they did go back to square one and did try to do something, it is not entirely clear that they would get to the point of noticing comment rulemaking. And obviously, it is also not clear that whatever they come up with actually would be more generous to these two individuals than uh, what happened, uh, what would have been done under the uh, HEROES Act plan. So uh, because of the speculative nature of all this, uh, I think there's a majority of justices who are going to rule that these people do not have standing. That probably will not have a decisive impact on the current case because if Nebraska or Missouri or one of the other states gets standing, that would be enough to invalidate uh, or to reach the merits. And in turn, it's likely, as we discussed earlier, that the the court will conclude that uh, the policy is illegal. However, the Brown case could have implications for future efforts to gain standing on this kind of argument, saying that the current policy isn't generous enough to me, but if it gets tracked down, maybe uh, the administration would uh, go back to the drawing board and adopt a policy that is more generous and in the process go through notice and comment rulemaking that will allow me to file my brilliant comments that would be incredibly persuasive to the administration and therefore lead them to be more generous to me and people like me. So uh, again, you you brought it up. So I'm just going to uh, pull on the thread a little bit more. Uh, there are those who say Plan B, if if um, this Heroes Act application forgiveness uh, is is uh, unsuccessful, in other words, it gets struck down. Uh, and Plan B is to appeal to these this earlier, or you might argue, broader uh, permission structure for the president to forgive loans, uh, the Higher Edu- Education Act. The, the president chose not to go this path, but let's say if he loses in one way, he might retry it. Uh, you, you've just described it as being unlikely. 
Uh, what are the benefits or merits or uh, so-called plan B? Is this stronger, weaker, or, you know, um, arguably, you know, completely un untenable um, if he went this other path? So the plaintiffs in this case are not the first to argue that the Higher Education Act should have been used. Uh, some supporters of the administration's position in this case uh, have been arguing that for some time. Elizabeth Warren and some other liberal Democrats in Congress have urged the Biden administration for a long time to use this. Uh, from the perspective of supporters of loan forgiveness, the advantage of this act is that it doesn't depend on the existence of a national emergency. And also, it doesn't require any showing that the people who got loan forgiveness were harmed in their ability to repay by a national emergency or really perhaps by anything else. But the disadvantage is, is that if you buy this Higher Education Act rationale, it is a power to essentially forgive any federally backed student loans at any time for virtually any reason. So it's even more of a major question uh, than the HEROES Act rationale would be. And for that reason, it's even more clear that there would have to be clarity, that Congress would have to clearly indicate that you can do this. Uh, and while I don't want to go into all the details on the Higher Education Act, it at the very least is not completely clear. If it were completely clear, it would raise another constitutional issue known as non-delegation. Uh, this the court has said that there pretty permissive about this, but they have said that there is some point where Congress is limited in its ability to delegate legislative power to the executive. And while under current doctrine, this is relatively permissive, the, uh, the, the non-delegation doctrine is pretty weak. Uh, several Supreme Court justices have said they would want to tighten it up. And so if the court did rule that the Biden administration or any future administration using the Higher Education Act for mass loan forgiveness, uh, that that was sufficiently authorized by Congress to overcome the major questions issue, then there might be a constitutional non-delegation issue there. Uh, and it's possible that the court would use that uh, as a vehicle for strengthening non-delegation. So I think uh, while the bottom line is the Higher Education Act offers some advantages for the administration relative to the HEROES Act, but it also has some disadvantages as well. And as a practical matter, if they lose on major questions in uh, the current case, there is a high likelihood, not an absolute certainty, of course, but a high likelihood that they would also lose on it if they went back and tried to do something similar under the Higher Education Act. So again, to paraphrase, to uh, um, to say that the Higher Education Act empowers the president to effectively forgive whatever loans he likes would be delegating legislative authority, which would be in violation of uh, Article One. I think the first uh, sentence of Article One is all legislative powers lie with Congress, not with the president. So you, they they can't give the president legislative powers, uh, particularly unchecked legislative powers. Is that right? At the very least, if there's any meaningful non-delegation constraint at all, it would be violated by something this sweeping. There are some constitutional scholars who say there are no limits on Congress's power to delegate executive authority. And if that's the case, then, you know, you can do this too. But if there are any meaningful limits at all, then giving the power to forgive hundreds of billions of dollars in student loans at any time for any reason, you know, that's got to be uh, an excessive delegation, if anything is. Now, my view is, again, perhaps I agree completely with you that the merits argument was very, very weak. If we do have a, an outcome that you describe, uh, would there be, uh, let's say, in, in the dissenting opinion, 
any um, justices that will come out, um, uh, in a sense, in Biden's favor, arguing that the, the president does have this uh, power. And I'll make it a two-part argument. Are any of those justices the same ones who argued against, you mentioned earlier, major questions and, and separation of power issues? Are they essentially trying to, in a sense, rule with the, with a particular party or ideology, or rather, do, do they truly rest on principle? Those people who see no problem with major questions and separation of power always do so, or do, do they call balls and strikes based on who's throwing the ball? So in fairness, all of the three cases that I mentioned, the three most recent major questions cases, they were all decided six to three along ideological lines. And I think it is fair to say that this raises some suspicions of ideological bias, both on the part of the dissenting liberal justices and on the part of the conservative justices who were in the uh, majority. Though I would note that in the case of the eviction moratorium, it is often forgotten that although it was the Biden administration that ended up litigating the case in the Supreme Court, it was actually Donald Trump who first did this eviction moratorium and then the Biden administration extended it with relatively modest modifications of various kinds that we talked about when we did our podcast about that case. Uh, so it's not purely a matter of, uh, you know, conservative justice striking down things that Democratic administrations did. Uh, but uh, yes, these cases have split along ideological lines, but I do think it's worth remembering, and I think the justices are well aware of this, uh, that the same kind of sweeping powers claimed by the Biden administration in these cases, or in one case also the, the Trump administration, they could be claimed by a future president. And given our closely divided partisan balance, it's entirely possible that in 2024, 2028, or the like, uh, that future president could just as easily or almost as easily be a Republican uh, as a Democrat. Yeah, I like to say, again, we're getting close to the end of our time. If I can editorialize, I, I, I like to share with my friends when they ask, I say, we're, our system isn't protected by our Bill of Rights. You know, the, the, those are 10 a penny. I think the division of power is the the element that, uh, that keeps us all safe. You know, we've got Article One writing laws. We've got Article Two, the president presiding over the executive branch and, and and executing those laws. And of course, we have judicial review, Article Three, who makes sure that everybody's playing by the rules. Um, I think that uh, the separation of powers is annoying for those who wished we had a bene wise, benevolent ruler. Uh, but again, as you point out so so well, uh, you have to if you if you want a, a benevolent ruler instead of a, what, the system we have, you have to be prepared for. Uh, the wrong guy getting all that power and uh, and all of us being in a lot of trouble. Um, enough of my editorializing. Uh, for our listeners who are, their heads are spinning because there's a lot to digest for, for, for lay people who are not constitutional scholars. Where can we learn more? Where can we read what you are writing about these opinions or these arguments and others just like it? Sure. I've written extensively about this case and some of those previous cases I mentioned at the Volok Conspiracy blog, V-O-L-O-K-H, uh, which is hosted at the Reason website. I also recently wrote a piece about the case for the SCOTUS blog website, uh, S-C-O-T-U-S. Uh, and uh, I've also written about some of the these issues in my more academic writings as well, which you can find just by Googling my name and going to my website where you can download a lot of those writings for free. Indeed. And I'll say the, a, a rave of your writings is that uh, in many of the other articles I've read, most are quoting you. So you have uh, risen to the top of uh, the most quoted uh, uh, legal scholars, constitutional scholars, at least in my universe. So uh, congratulations on being uh, effectively the last word uh, on, on these <laughs> issues. Thank you for joining Hublog, Ilya. I, I really appreciate your time. Thank you so much for having me. 
This has been another episode of Hubwonk. If you enjoyed today's show, there are several ways to support Hubwonk and Pioneer Institute. It would be easier for you and better for us if you subscribe to Hubwonk on your iTunes podcatcher. It would make it easier for others to find Hubwonk if you offer a five-star rating or a favorable review. We're always grateful if you share Hubwonk with friends. If you have ideas or suggestions or comments for me regarding future episode topics, you're welcome to email me at hubwonk at pioneerinstitute.org. Please join me next week for a new episode of Hubwonk.